Let's pray. Grant to us, O Lord, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might grow in our knowledge of you, be strengthened in patience and endurance and joy, giving thanks to the Father through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I've often thought that it would be difficult being an atheist. I know that as a philosophy it's becoming increasingly popular and militant, at least in the West. But as a way of life, as a way of living, it's hard to be true to their convictions. In the past, intelligent atheists have recognised this, and they saw atheism as a life of despair, of staring into the abyss and finding nothing there. The new atheists, however, are far less realistic and far more arrogant. They see themselves as masters of their own destiny, navigating life and heroically facing death. I suspect, however, that their stoicism in the face of death is more likely to be bravado, driven by an insatiable desire to be in control of everything, even death itself. Euthanasia has always been more about control than compassion. And it's this desire for control that makes me think that the new atheists haven't entirely denied the existence of God. They simply decided that they themselves are God. As for the rest of us who do believe that there really is a God, and that he's not us, we need not live in despair or delusion. But we do have to grapple with the question of who God is and what's he like. So, for example, is God personal or impersonal? Is he one or many? Are his powers absolute or limited? That there may be many gods is not a modern idea, but a very ancient pagan idea. And for New Age pagans, it's rather an attractive idea. It's attractive because it gives we, the consumers, the thrill of mix and match. And it's attractive because it means that we are in no way accountable to any one all-powerful God. For if there's one God and he's Lord of all, including you and I, then we're subject to his authority and not vice versa. But what would one holy and powerful God be like? Well, for Islam, the one true God is impersonal. He neither shares our sorrow or knows our joy. He rewards the just and he punishes the wicked. And his mercy is limited to those who bear the burden of their own sins. And it's withheld from those who fail to live up to his exacting standards. By contrast, the God of Judaism and Christianity is entirely personal. He's created us in his own image and likeness. So he shares both our joy and our sorrow, just as you would expect. But it's not that God is like us in large measure. It's more that we're like God in small measure. For unlike us, God is altogether righteous and just. So he'll always punish wickedness and unrighteousness. And also unlike us, God's altogether loving and kind. As our prayer of humble access says, God's nature is always to have mercy. Now I don't know what you think about that, 
But the reality is that most people in our culture of choice and consumer sovereignty, well, they want to be selective. They want to choose which aspects of God's character they would like to retain. Any sentence that begins with, I like to think of God in a certain way, is almost certain to be a peculiar version of personal heresy. Some will tell you that they rather like Jesus, but the God of the Old Testament is a little bit angry. Or they speak of the God of the New Testament as being far more likeable. If he's the same God, then he's had a makeover, and Jesus must be his softer side. Of course, to believe such nonsense is to ignore so much of the Old Testament. The 23rd Psalm, for example, describes God as a shepherd, leading his people in quietness, restoring our soul, anointing us with goodness and love all the days of our life. It also means ignoring the fact that no one in the Bible speaks more often, warns more solemnly, or describes more graphically the horrors of hell than Jesus. So what's God really like? Is he only a God of holiness and wrath, as the Muslims believe? Or is he also a God of mercy and deliverance, as the Christians believe? And if he is both, then is that a good thing? Is that what we really want, or indeed really need? Well, the answer is yes. Certainly every one of us needs God to be forgiving and merciful, otherwise we have no hope. But we also need God to be holy and just. We need to be sure that God is good and he's incorruptible, that he never changes, he's never fickle. We need to know that injustice will be punished and that there is virtue in seeking to do good. We need to know that Pol Pot and Hitler and Stalin cannot be forgiven just because God's too nice to condemn anyone. If God winks at greed, malice, corruption, murder and injustice, then life after death sounds more like hell than heaven. So a God that is only holy or a God that is only merciful seems totally uninviting. And it's only the God of the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, that reveals himself to be both. Our God is unique. There is no other God like him. And Micah the prophet makes that point very clear in his book. He writes at the end of the 8th century BC, just prior to the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. Most of what he says, however, is a message to the southern kingdom of Judah. And what he says, he writes in the form of poetry. And he delivers this as three oracles. Oracles of doom and oracles of hope. The first oracle in chapters 1 and 2 is addressed to the capitals of Samaria and Jerusalem. The second oracle in chapters 3 to 5 is addressed to the leaders of Judah. And the third oracle in chapters 6 and 7 is addressed to the people of Judah. And at the beginning of each oracle... Micah calls them to take heed, to listen to the warning of judgment to come. 
So in the first oracle, have a look at it. It's in chapter 1, verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen. O earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And at the beginning of the second oracle, in chapter 3, verse 1, Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice, you who hate evil and love hate good and love evil. And at the beginning of the third oracle, there is again a call to listen to the warnings of judgment to come. So we read in chapter 6, verse 1, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains, that the hills hear what you have to say. And in each instance, the Lord goes on to promise justice and therefore judgment. Judgment based on the laws of the covenant. Judgment based on the laws given to Moses. And clearly, neither Israel nor Judah has kept the covenant. Neither the leaders of the people or, or the people themselves have kept faith with the covenant. All of them had failed and now all of them justly deserve God's judgment. And if this was the Quran, this is where the story would end. You fail, you lose, God is just and you're not. And yet Micah's oracles, well they're not simply a message of doom, they're messages of hope. In each oracle God is described as a shepherd. A shepherd who will spare from judgment a remnant, a faithful few. So we read in the first oracle from chapter 2, verse 12, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. Historically, this is very likely God's rescue of Jerusalem around 700 BC. God saves them then from the Assyrian king Sennacherib. Hezekiah was king of Judah at the time and he repented in response to warnings from Isaiah and Micah. And in the second oracle in chapter 5, we again read of a shepherd saving a remnant. At this time, however, well, the shepherd's Jesus. That this is a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah and the remnant of Jacob is the beginning of the church. So we read from chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And in verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. He will be our peace. And in verses 7 and 8, Micah describes the church as the remnant of Jacob in the midst of many people. The remnant of Jacob among the nations. And the third and final oracle, well it looks even further ahead, Forward to a day when once again God will be a shepherd to his people. A day when he'll bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness for their transgressions. 
He calls Israel the remnant or the flock of his inheritance. So we read from chapter 7, verse 4, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. And from verse 18, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You don't stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You'll tread our sins underfoot. You'll hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You'll be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham, as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. This prophecy is yet to be fulfilled, and it's one that the Apostle Paul longed for and wrote about in Romans 11. So what Micah makes very clear is that there is no God like the Lord. He's unique, he's altogether just, and he's altogether merciful. And the basis for God's judgment is the failure of Israel to keep the covenant. And the basis for God's mercy is his unwillingness to give up on a people for whom he has pledged his unremitting love and faithfulness. This combination of holiness and mercy, justice and deliverance, is the recurring theme throughout Micah. It's the recurring theme throughout the Old Testament. Indeed, it's the melody of the Gospel. And I call the Gospel a melody because it's a beautiful refrain. It's a message of good news to the poor. It's a proclamation of freedom for captives. It's a song of salvation declaring that our God reigns. For the Gospel does what Micah and the Old Testament could never do. The Gospel resolves the tension between God's holiness and his love, between God's justice and his mercy. The Gospel explains how God can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. The message of the New Testament is that both have come together in the person of the Lord Jesus. Christ Jesus is heaven's just judge and earth's loving saviour. In him God's love and justice have met. In the words of the psalm, love and faithfulness have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And it's the coming together of these qualities at the cross which is the beauty of the Christian gospel. Without judgment, there is no justice. Without love, there is no redemption. And judgment means that all sin is punishable by death and separation from God. That's what justice looks like. The only question is, do we, by repentance and faith, receive the forgiveness offered to us at the cross? That's what wisdom and love looks like. Or do we refuse God's offer of mercy and bear the punishment for our own sins? That's what pride and foolishness looks like. But where we stand with God, therefore, is really important. And it's important because it has eternal consequence. But it's also important because it has extraordinary implications for the here and now. 
For repentance and faith is not primarily an affirmation of a truth. Primarily, it's the establishment of a relationship. A relationship that will reorder every priority in our lives and turn our world upside down. And Micah is one who obviously takes matters of relationship with God very seriously and very personally. He was not a dispassionate mouthpiece for God. In all of his three oracles, he speaks of his own response to God in the first person. In the first oracle, he says in chapter 1, verse 8, that because of this I will weep and wail, I'll go about barefoot and naked, I'll howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, but as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. And in chapter 7, verse 7, he says, But as for me, I, I, I watch in hope for the Lord. I, I wait for God, my Saviour, my God, will hear me. Undoubtedly, Michael wants to take a personal stand. He wants to separate himself from the sin and compromise of human experience. He wants to make his own allegiance to the Lord really, really clear. And Micah's challenge to us is that we also be really, really clear. We need to be clear about how we think about God. We need to be clear about how we live as salt and light in a world where we are not natural citizens. And we need to be very clear as to how we speak into a hostile culture where we are strangers and aliens. If we're to think clearly about God, then we will need to understand that God certainly is loving and kind, but he is not sentimental. His love is tough, and he disciplines those he calls his sons and his daughters. To think clearly about God is to recognise him as altogether holy and entirely merciful, and never let one attribute cloud the other. If we're to be clear about living honest and straight lives before God and the world, then we are to act justly. We're to choose right and reject wrong without compromise. And that's not easy because the right path is nearly always narrow and winding. And rejecting wrong is nearly always characterised as harsh and judgmental and unloving. It'll put you on the wrong side of history, or so they say. But don't be alarmed or surprised. For if you belong to the world, then the world would love you as its own. But because Jesus has chosen you out of the world, then the world will hate you. If we're to be clear about living honest and straight lives before God in the world, then we are to love mercy. That means being willing to forgive. It doesn't mean winking at sin or pretending that sin doesn't matter. It does. Sin always matters. And nearly always it causes pain. But loving mercy means being willing to bear the burden of someone else's sin and choosing to love them nonetheless. That's what God in Christ has done for us. 
and living honest and straight lives before God and the world means walking humbly with our God. At the very least, that means owning God's lordship in all areas of our life. It means making our every consideration and our every action subject to honouring him and one another before ourselves. And lastly, we need to be very clear about how we speak. Certainly we need to guard our tongue from evil, but we also need to speak the truth in love. And because as Christians we understand God's holiness and we understand God's love, then we have a double reason to speak up. We speak up to declare God's justice and therefore warn of judgment to come. We speak up to declare God's love and therefore proclaim the hope of deliverance in Christ Jesus the Lord. As Micah puts it, As for me, I'm filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. And as the Apostle Paul puts it, he says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others what we are as plain to God. But for Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Knowing the fear of God and the love of God is what compelled both Micah and Paul to live their lives humbly before God. It compelled them to speak the truth in love, warning of judgment to come, and persuading men of the need for repentance and faith. May it be that our thoughts about God, our lives lived before God, and our words spoken concerning God reflect his holiness, his love, and his incomparability. For who's a God like ours? He pardons sin and he forgives our transgressions. He doesn't stay angry forever, but he delights to show mercy. He has compassion on us and he treads our sins underfoot and he hurls all our sins into the depths of the sea. At the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.